Are you ready to transform your life with the power of gratitude? Look no further than 21 Days of Thankfulness, the must-have book written by gratitude expert, Lawanta Christina. This book is packed with daily prompts, exercises, and inspiring quotes to help you cultivate a mindset of gratitude and positivity. With 21 Days of Thankfulness, you'll learn how to focus on the good in your life and you'll start seeing incredible results in just three short weeks. Luanza Christina has helped countless people transform their lives with her proven techniques, and now you can experience the same life-changing benefits. If you're ready to take your gratitude practice to the next level, head over to Amazon now and get your copy of 21 Days of Thankfulness. Don't wait. Start living your best life today. Thank you all for listening to Talks with the Gratitude Chick. Remember, gratitude is the key to a happier life. Until next time, stay grateful and keep thriving. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talks with the Gratitude Chick. I am your host, Luanza Christina, a.k.a. The Gratitude Chick. Don't forget to follow me on all of my social media platforms at The Gratitude Chick for TikTok and Instagram, The Gratitude Chick 2, that's T-O-O, for Facebook, and join my Facebook group, The Magic of Gratitude. Start your gratitude journey today with 21 Days of Thankfulness available now on Amazon. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of your reading corner with the Gratitude Chick. So if you listen to yesterday's episode, you'll know that I said I was going to start recording more and I gave you a little bit of a a tentative schedule. So um, Wednesdays and Thursdays are going to be your reading corner. And currently, I'm reading two books to you guys. So, Thursdays are the Book of Enoch until it's finished. And today is going to be the start of a book I've I've really... Of course, I've heard of this, uh, this book for many years. But the title didn't really resonate with me. So, I never read it. It was literally in my mind between... The Science of Getting Rich and Think and Grow Rich. So as you guys know, I, I've already read The Science of Getting Rich on the podcast. You can go scroll back and see the episodes and listen to the episodes. But today we are going to read Think and Grow Rich. So um, the reason I guess I was adverse to it is be of the Think and Grow Rich part. And you know, when you don't know, when you're ignorant to it, you're like, Think and Grow Rich? That's a lot of poppycock, sir. And that's kind of how I felt, which is why I never read the book. So now I am at a point where I said, let me just go ahead and read this book and see what he's saying. You know, um, The Science of Getting Rich, of course, I decided to read it because I read a couple of Wallace Waddle's books and the science of their science behind getting rich. So, of course, that caught my attention. And yeah, let me read it. So when I read it on the podcast, I was probably like the third or fourth time I read that book. So 
today we are going to start with the introduction to um, Think and Grow Rich. And the reason why um, is because there's a lot of um, juicy details before the book even starts. So that's why I'm, I'm going to start with the introduction. Um, and just as a reminder, I do read with my own commentary. So I am going to try my best to limit the commentary. I said I'll try it and said I'll succeed. As you can see, I'm still talking. So um, let's just get into it. Introduction. The man who thought his way into partnership with Thomas Edison. Truly thoughts are things and powerful things at that. When they are mixed with definiteness of purpose, persistence, and a burning desire for their translation into riches or other material objects. A little more than 30 years ago, Edwin C. Barnes discovered how true it is that men really do think and grow rich. His discovery did not come at one sitting. It came little by little, beginning with a burning desire to become a business associate of the great Edison. One of the chief characteristics of Barnes' desire was that it was definite. He wanted to work with Edison, not for him. Observe carefully the description of how he went about translating his desire into reality, and you will have a better understanding of the 13 principles which lead to riches. When this desire of impulse of thought first flashed into his mind, he was in no position to act upon it. Two difficulties stood in his way. He did not know Mr. Edison, and he did not have enough money to pay his railroad, his railroad fare to Orange, New Jersey. These difficulties were sufficient to have discouraged the majority of men from making any attempt to carry out the desire. But this was no ordinary desire. He was so determined to find a way to carry out his desire that he finally decided to travel by blind baggage rather than be defeated. Okay, so um, just a little caveat. It tells us that it, it literally says to the uninitiated, whatever that means. This means that he went to East Orange on a freight train, the blind baggage. He was on a freight train. Okay. He presented himself at Mr. Edison's laboratory and announced he had come to go into business with the inventor. And speaking of the first meeting between Barnes and Edison years later, Mr. Edison said, he stood there before me looking like an ordinary tramp, but there was something in the expression of his face which conveyed the impression that he was determined to get what he had come, come after. I had learned from years of experience with men that when a man really desires a thing so deeply that he is willing to stake his entire future on a single turn of the wheel in order to get it, he is sure to win. I gave him the opportunity he asked for because I saw he had made up his mind to stand by until he succeeded. Subsequent events proved that no mistake was made. Just what young Barnes said to Mr. Edison on that occasion was far less important than that which he thought. Edison himself said so. It could not have been the young man's appearance which got him his start in the Edison office, for that was definitely against him. It was what he thought that counted. If the significance of this statement could be conveyed to every person who read it, there would be no need for the remainder of this book. 
Barnes did not get his partnership with Edison on his first interview. He did get a chance to work in the Edison offices at a very nominal wage, doing work that was unimportant to Edison, but most important to Barnes because it gave him an opportunity to display his merchandise where his intended partner could see it. Months went by, apparently nothing happened to bring the coveted goal which Barnes had set up in his mind as his definite major purpose. But something important was happening in Barnes' mind. He was constantly intensifying his desire to become the business associate of Edison. Psychologists have correctly said that when one is truly ready for a thing, it puts in its appearance. Do you guys hear that? When you are truly ready for a thing, it will come. That's, that's, that's worth noting. I just wanted to point that out. Barnes was ready for a business association with Edison. Moreover, he was determined to remain ready until he got that which he was seeking. I am open and ready to receive. That is something that, that is an affirmation that you should always say no matter what is going on in your life. I am open and ready to receive. One of the three affirmations that I repeat every day is, I am open and ready to receive all of the goodness God has stored for me. I am open and ready to receive all of the goodness God has stored for me. And I say that affirmation three times in a row, multiple times a day. So listen, there is something to being open and ready to receive. Because when you are straddling the fence, going back and forth, wavering, doing all of that, you're not ready and you're definitely not open. You may think you're open because you want what you want when you want it, but you are not ready to receive whatever it is that you are wanting. When you are open and ready to receive, that is when what you want shows up. Okay. He did not say to himself, ah, well, what's the use? I guess I'll change my mind and try for a salesman job. But he did say, I came here to go into business with Edison, and I'll accomplish this end if it takes the remainder of my life. He meant it. What a different story men would have to tell if only they would adopt a definite purpose and stand by that purpose until it had time to become an all-consuming obsession. And this is where consistency and persistence come in. These two go hand in hand because in order for you to persist, you have to be consistent. In order to for you to be consistent, you have to persist. These are, it's like a, it's cyclical. You have, you have to have both in order to accomplish what these, especially these huge dreams that you have for yourself. My huge dream for myself is to be a New York Times bestselling author, a world-renowned podcast host. Like, these are huge dreams for me, you know, because I am an obscure person just, you know, <laughs> rambling about on the internet. So, and it is, it is such a saturated field now, both of these, because everybody starts a podcast and it really is, you know, kind of excludes, you know, the, the little people when celebrities and people who have millions of followers start podcasts and within the million, excuse me, within the first month have millions of downloads where those of us who've been doing this for years only have, you know, thousands of downloads and that's in within years. Like um, the girls from, what is it, Potomac Housewives? They decided to do their Reasonably Shady podcast. 
and they got 5 million downloads and I think like a, a month or two. So it is, is a very saturated market because people are going to, towards, you know, these online kind of apps to, to get a, a different, um, I guess, stream of incoming to get their voices out. You know, people like Nicki Minaj, who has, you know, her radio show on AMP now. And AMP is really a podcast programming, but it is, you know, kind of like radio without radio. You guys know what I mean? So it is it is is a very saturated market that I'm in for both books and video. So that's why I say it is um, a huge goal and dream for me because the markets are very saturated. So that's not, not going to stop me from recording. It's not going to stop me from writing my books because those are two things that I love to do. Okay. So maybe Young Barnes did not know it at the time, but his bulldog determination, his persistence in standing back of a single desire was destined to mow down all opposition and bring him the opportunity he was seeking. When the opportunity came, it appeared in a different form and and from a different direction than Barnes had expected. That is one of the tricks of opportunity. It has a sly habit of slipping in by the back door and often it comes disguised in the form of misfortune or temporary defeat. Perhaps this is why so many fail to recognize opportunity. And I agree with this so much. And I I say this because in 2019, I had a job, a great job working in fintech in, in Atlanta. And I was laid off from that position. And it seemed like temporary defeat it did because I had had this job for a long time and so having you know being laid off it laid the foundation for who I am becoming today had I not left that job and still been working this job right now I never would have wrote the the books that I've written I never would have started this podcast I never would have started either of my groups like I never would have decided to change my entire career and go this route, I'd still be working and building someone else's dreams. Okay. Mr. Edison had just perfected a new office device known at that time as the Edison dictating machine. Now it's called the Ediphone. His salesman, well, not now. This this book was written in 1937, so... His salesmen were not enthusiastic over the machine. They did not believe it could be sold without great effort. Barnes saw his opportunity. It had crawled in quietly, hidden in a queer-looking machine, which interested no one but Barnes and the inventor. Barnes knew he could sell the Edison dictating machine. He suggested this to Edison and promptly got his chance. He did sell the machine. In fact, he sold it so successfully that Edison gave him a contract to distribute and market it all over the nation. Out of that business association grew the slogan made by Edison and installed by Barnes. The business alliance has been in operation for more than 30 years. Out of it, Barnes has made himself rich in money, but he has done something 
infinitely greater. He has, brew, he has proved that one really may think and grow rich. How much actual cash that original desire of Barnes has been worth to him, I have no way of knowing. Perhaps it has brought him two or three millions of dollars, but the amount which whatever it is becomes insignificant when compared with the greater asset he required in the form of definite knowledge that an intangible impulse of thought can be transmuted into its physical counterpart by the application of known principles. Barnes literally thought himself into a partnership with the great Edison. He thought himself into a fortune. Now, two to three million of through two to three million dollars today is wealthy, right? But two to three million dollars almost a hundred years ago is probably more like twenty or thirty million, or maybe even a hundred million. You know what I mean? So let's not be too hasty here, you know? This man made him some money. And to think that when he first met Edison, Edison saw him and looked at him and said, he looks like a tramp. (laughs) He had nothing to start with except the capacity to know what he wanted and the determination to stand by that desire until he realized it. He had no money to begin with. He had but little education. He had no influence, but he did have initiative, faith, and the will to win. With these intangible forces, he made himself number one man with the greatest inventor who ever lived. Now, let us look at a different situation and study a man who had plenty of tangible evidence of riches but lost it because he stopped three feet short of the goal he was seeking. Wow. Okay, so this part is called Three Feet from Gold. One of the most common causes of failure is the habit of quitting when one is overtaken by temporary defeat. Listen, I'm I'm saying it like this because I have been a quitter. I was a quitter, you know? And listen, not not just a quitter. I'd never quit on like my jobs. When I excelled, I excelled. Um, and I excelled many times rapidly and over and over. But I, when it comes to me personally and my own goals and desires for my own life, outside of work no 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 no. quitter way back when um and and i'm gonna give you an example i was i i was a huge fan of the show the biggest loser it always amazed me how these people got on this show three four hundred pounds and were you know just giving it all to the audience you know and losing hundreds of pounds like it boggled my mind and sometimes they would get on there after a week and it'd be like 30 pounds lost like what you know 15 pounds lost 20 like I used to sit there like wow wow this is amazing you know, and then when I would start my own journey for weight loss, I would get on the pound, on the scale and it'd be like three pounds lost, four pounds lost, and I'd give up because it wasn't this 30 pounds. And that's how they, that's how it got me for so many years because I was comparing my journey to these people's journey and how dare they lose 30 pounds when I got on the scale and it said three. But had I continued and not looked at that as defeat, 
But had I even been practicing gratitude during those times, I would have realized that three pounds a week, if I stayed consistent and had this three pounds a week, that's 150 pounds in a year. Even if you don't have to lose that amount of weight, just broaden broaden your scope a little bit and realize how much three pounds a week is amazing. You know? It really is amazing. So now my goal is, you know, when I get on the scale and it's three down three pounds, I'm celebrating now. But back then I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was ignorant to, I, I, I can't even say I didn't know what I didn't know. I was more into what they were doing than what I was doing. These people were living and breathing weight loss for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They had every opportunity given to them to make these, you know, weight loss goals. For me, I had a job, I had this and I had that and da 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 So me doing three pounds a week was phenomenal. I just didn't see phenomenal because I was too busy looking at them and not being grateful for what I did. Mm. So I just wanted to say, I get what he said. And I'm going to repeat it. He said, one of the most common causes of failure is the habit of quitting when one is overtaken by temporary defeat. And that to me is so crazy because it wasn't even defeat losing three pounds in a week, but it was defeat to me because it wasn't the 15, 20, 30 pounds that they lost. Had I continued and been consistent, weight I wouldn't have these issues that I have today. There would be no, I'm, my 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 thinking is there would be no gastritis issue. Um, the anxiety would not be the way it is because it is now coupled with health and anxiety. So all of these things would not be in my life right now had I persisted and been consistent with three pounds a week. Wow. Okay. Every person is guilty of this mistake at one time or another. An uncle of R.U. Darby was caught by the gold fever in the gold rush days and went west to dig and grow rich. He had never heard that more gold has been mined from the brains of men that has ever been taken from the earth. He staked a claim and went to work with pick and shovel. The going was hard, but his lust for gold was definite. After weeks of labor, he was rewarded by the discovery of the shining ore. He needed machinery to bring the ore to the surface. Quietly, he covered up the mine, retraced his footsteps at his home in Williamsburg, Maryland, told his relatives and a few neighbors of the strike. They got together money for the needed machinery, had it shipped. The uncle and Darby went back to work the mine, the first car of ore was mined and was shipped to a smelter. The returns proved they had one of the richest mines in Colorado. A few more cars of that ore would clear the debts. Then would come the big killing prop, killing in profits. Down went the drills. Up went the hopes of Harvey and Darby and the uncle. Then something happened. The vein of gold ore disappeared. They had come to the end of the rainbow and the pot of gold was no longer there. They drilled on desperately trying to pick up the vein again, all to no avail. Finally, they decided to quit. They sold the machinery to a junk man for a few hundred dollars and took the train back home. Some junk men are dumb, but not this one. He called in a mining engineer to look at the mine and do a little calculating. 
The engineer advised that the project had failed because the owners were not familiar with the fault lines. His calculations showed that the vein would be found just three feet from where the Darby's had stopped drilling. That is exactly where it was found. The junk man took millions of dollars in ore from the mine because he knew enough to seek expert counsel before giving up. Most of the money which went into the machinery was procured through the efforts of R.U. Darby, which was then a very young man. The money came from his relatives and neighbors because of their faith in him. He paid back every dollar of it, although he was years in doing so. Long afterward, Mr. Darby recouped his losses many times over when he made the discovery that desire can be transmuted into gold. The discovery came after he went into the business of selling life insurance. Remembering that he lost a huge fortune because he stopped three feet from gold, Darby profit, profited by the experience in his chosen work by the simple method of saying to himself, I stopped three feet from gold, but I will never stop because men say no when I ask them to buy insurance. Darby is one of a small group of fewer than 50 men who sell more than a million dollars in life insurance annually. He, he owes his stickability to the lesson he learned from his quitability in the gold mines. Before success comes in any man's life, he is sure to meet with much temporary defeat and perhaps some failure. When defeat overtakes a man, the easiest and most logical thing to do is to quit. That is exactly what the majority of men do. More than 500 of the most successful men in this country has ever known told the author their greatest successes came just one step beyond the point at which defeat had overtaken them. Failure is a trickster with a keen sense of irony and cunning. It takes a great delight in tripping one when success is almost within reach. That was a good lesson. Very good lesson. Here's another one. It's called A 50 Cent Lesson in Persistence. Shortly after Mr. Darby received his degree from the University of Hard Knocks and had decided to profit by his experience in the gold mining business, he had the good fortune to be present on an occasion that proved to him that no does not necessarily mean no. One afternoon, he was helping his uncle grind wheat in an old-fashioned mill. The uncle operated a large farm on which a number of, sh of colored sharecrop farmers lived. So I'm just going to say, again, this book was written in 1937. So the use of the term colored was um, very used back in those times. So um, don't take offense. I am not going to take offense because when you know better, you do better. And again, this book was written in 1937. Quietly, the door was opened and a small colored child, the daughter of a tenant, walked in and took her place near the door. The uncle looked up, saw the child, and barked at her roughly, what do you want? Meekly, the child replied, my mammy say send her 50 cents. Okay, so... I'm gonna try to chill, but my mammy say, come on, what, what? Okay. 
Okay, and then his response is, I'll not do it. The uncle retorted, now run, now you run on home. Yes, sir. Like, what? Who, why would you? Okay. I'm not, I'm not even going to repeat that. The ch- I, I might just change all of this because I, I really don't want to perpetuate that. I know this book, like I said, the book was written in 1937, but I, I don't want to offend myself and my my listeners by even reading that again. So going forward, anything that's, you know, colored and all that, I'm not going to read it that way. So take it up with somebody else, but I, I don't want to offend myself or anyone else listening. So that's it. Yes, sir, the child replied, but she did not move. The uncle went ahead with his work so busily engaged that he did not pay enough attention to the child to observe that she did not leave. When he looked up and saw her still standing there, he yelled at her, I told you to go on home. Now go or I'll take a switch to you. The little girl said, yes, sir, but she did not budge an inch. The uncle dropped a sack of grain he was about to pour into the mill hopper, picked up a barrel stave, a barrel stave and started toward the child with an expression on his face that indicated trouble. Darby held his breath. He was certain he was about to witness a murder. He knew his uncle had a fierce temper. He knew that the child, that the black children were not supposed to defy white people in that part of the country. When the uncle reached the spot where the child was standing, She quickly stepped forward one step, looked up into his eyes, and screamed at the top of her shrill voice, My mom's gotta have that 50 cents. The uncle stopped, looked at her for a minute, then slowly said, then slowly laid the barrel stave on the floor, put his hand in his pocket, took out a half a dollar, and gave it to her. The child took the money and slowly backed toward the door, never taking her eyes off the man who she had just conquered after she had gone the uncle sat down on the box and looked out the window into space for more than 10 minutes he was pondering with awe over over the whipping he had just taken mr darby too was doing the same thing that was the first time in all his experience that he had seen a black child deliberately master an adult white person how did she do it What happened to his uncle that caused him to lose his fierceness and become as docile as a lamb? What strange power did this child use that made her master over her superior? These and other similar questions flashed in Darby's mind, but he did not find the answer until years later when he told me the story. Strangely, the story of this unusual experience was told to the author in the old mill on the very spot spot where the uncle took his whipping. Strangely, too, I had devoted nearly a quarter of a century to the study of the power which enabled an ignorant, illiterate... <sighs> an ignorant, illiterate colored child to conquer an intelligent man. Is this how... Okay, it's 1937, girl chill out this book was written in 1937 okay let me keep going because i almost have a mind to just chuck this book in the trash even though it's on my phone okay 
As we stood there in that musty old mill, Mr. Darby repeated the story of the unusual conquest and finished by asking, what can you make of it? What strange power did that child use that so completely whipped my uncle? The answer to his question will be found in the principles described in this book. The answer is full and complete. It contains details and instructions sufficient to enable anyone to understand and apply the same force which the little child accidentally stumbled upon. Keep your mind alert and you will observe exactly what strange power came to the rescue of the child. You will catch a glimpse of this power in the next chapter. Somewhere in the book, you will find an idea that will quicken your receptive powers and place at your command for your own benefit, this same irresistible power. The awareness of this power may come to you in the first chapter, or it may flash into your mind in some subsequent chapter. It may come in the form of a single idea, or it may come in the nature of a plan or a purpose. Again, it may cause you to go back into your past experiences of failure or defeat and bring to the surface some lesson by which you can regain all that you lost through defeat. After I had described to Mr. Darby the power unwittingly used by the little black child, well, I'll just say the little child, he quickly retraced his 30 years of experience as a sales as a life insurance salesman and frankly acknowledged that his success in that field was due in no small degree to the lesson he had learned from the child. Mr. Darby pointed out every time a prospect tried to bow me out without buying, I saw that child standing there in the old mills, her big eyes glaring in defiance, and I said to myself, I gotta make this sale. The better portion of all sales I have made were made after people had said no. He recalled, too, his mistake in having stopped only three feet from gold, but he said that experience was a blessing in disguise. It taught me to keep on keeping on, no matter how hard the going may be, a lesson I needed to learn before I could succeed in anything. This story of Mr. Darby and his uncle, the child, and the gold mine doubtless will be read by hundreds of men who make their living by selling life insurance, and to all of these, the author wishes to, to offer the suggestion that Darby owes to these two experiences his ability to sell more than a million dollars of life insurance every year. Life is strange and often imponderable. Both the successes and the failures have their roots in simple experiences. Mr. Darby's experiences were commonplace and simple enough, yet they held the answer to his destiny in life Therefore, they were as important to him as life itself. He profited by these two dramatic experiences because he analyzed them and found the lesson they taught. But what of the man who has neither the time nor the inclination to study failure in search of knowledge that may lead to success? Where and how is he to learn the art of converting defeat into stepping stones to opportunity? In answer to these questions, this book was written. The answer called for a description of 13 principles, but remember as you read the answer you may be seeking to the questions which have caused you to ponder over the strangeness of life may be found in your own mind through some idea, plan, or purpose which may spring into your mind as you read. One sound idea is all that one needs to achieve success. 
The principles described in this book contain the best and the most practical of all that is known concerning ways and means of creating useful ideas. Before we go any further in our approach to the description of these principles, we believe you are entitled to receive this important suggestion. When riches begin to come, they come so quickly in such great abundance that one wonders where they have been hiding during all those lean years. This is an astounding statement and all the more so when we take into consideration the popular belief that riches come only to those who work hard and long. When you begin to think and grow rich, you will observe that riches begin with a state of mind, with definite, definiteness of purpose, with little or no hard work. You and every other person ought to be interested in knowing how to acquire that state of mind, which will attract riches. Now, I will say this. We as, an, as a country, maybe as a world, I'm not sure about other countries, but in the U.S., we were taught to work hard for our money. And I've said this many times. We had TV that showed us this by showing families who, you know, the husband went out and he worked hard and came home and had, you know, his family around him and the family was prosperous and, you know, had a great, you know, middle class life. And then you had, um, you know, movies. Um, what is that movie where the guy dresses up at the, as the girl? I think it's called Working Girl. Um, I'm not sure if that's it, but I think you guys know what I mean. It was in the 80s. And then you had songs like, um, what what is her name? Donna Summer. She works hard for the money. So hard for it, honey. She works hard for the money. You know, that song, in that song, she repeated that phrase 19 times. So if you're singing that song and you're just listening to She Works Hard for the Money, you have affirmed that into your mind over and over again as you sing the song. So we have affirmed through all of our senses that you must work hard for your money. And that was, and and, and this is 2023, this been at least 30 to 40 years that it has been affirmed in the U.S. that you must work hard for your money. And I just say 30 to 40 years because that's just in my lifetime. I'm certain that it came before in order for someone to create it in the first place. So I just wanted to stop and say that part because I feel that, um, you know, sometimes that when you think about when people think of thinking and growing rich, especially me, which is why I'd never read the book, you want to, you know, discount it off the top because you've been taught you have to work hard for your money. Even now, you know, uh, parents are teaching their children to work hard for their money. They're teaching their children to go out and get a job. And that's how you succeed to go to go, you know, graduate from high school, go to college. Then you get a job and you work 30 to 35 years for retirement. This is what is taught in the U.S. But this book is going to teach us how to, you know, how that is not the correct way. Yes, you'll, you'll earn some, some money, but there is a better way to earn and to get money. So that is what we're going to learn with this book. Okay. You and every person, other person ought to be interested in knowing how to acquire that state of mind, which will attract riches. I spent 25 years in research analyzing more than 25,000 people because I too wanted to know how wealthy men became that way. 
Without that research, this book could not have been written. Here, take notice of a very significant truth. The business depression started in 1929 and continued on to an all-time record of destruction until sometime after President Roosevelt entered office. Then the depression began to fade into nothingness. Just as an electrician in a theater raises the lights so gradually that darkness is transmuted into light before you realize it, so did the spell of fear in the minds of the people gradually fade away and became faith. Observe very closely as soon as you master the principles of this philosophy and begin to follow the instructions for applying those principles, your financial status will begin to improve and everything you touch will begin to transmute itself into an asset for your benefit. Impossible? Not at all. One of the main weaknesses of mankind is the average man's familiarity with the word impossible. Listen, I don't know why I can't pronounce familiarity. I don't know, but stall me out. He knows all the rules which will not work. He knows all the things which cannot be done. This book was written for those who seek the rules which have made others successful and are willing to stake everything on those rules. A great many years ago, I purchased a fine dictionary. The first thing I did with it was to turn to the word impossible and neatly clip it out of the book. That would not be an unwise thing for you to do. Success comes to those who become success conscious. That's deep. Failure comes to those who indifferently allow themselves to become failure conscious. Wow. The object of this book is to help all who seek it to learn the art of changing their minds from failure consciousness to success consciousness. Another weakness found in altogether too many people is the habit of measuring everything and everyone by their own impressions and beliefs. This is true. Some who will read this will believe that no one can think and grow rich. They cannot think in terms of riches because their thought habits have been stepped, have been steeped in poverty, want, misery, failure, and defeat. These unfortunate people remind me of a prominent Chinese who came to America, a prominent, okay, to be educated in American ways. He attended the University of Chicago. One day, President Harper met this young Okay, this is 1937. This is 1937. This is 1937. It literally says, one day President Harper met this young Oriental. What is up? <laughs> okay, y'all, y'all just deal with me. I, I understand. I am, I am seriously trying because they, people really love this book. And I'm trying to to keep in mind that the book was written in 1937. But this, wow, just, just wow. So again, I'm going to try not to keep getting bogged down on all this stuff. So I'm going to read it again, just supplant over the rude words, you know, the rude descriptions. One day, President Harper met this young man on the campus, stopped to chat with him for a few minutes, and asked what had impressed him as being the most noticeable characteristic of the American people. Why, the man exclaimed, the queer slant of your eyes. Your eyes are off slant. What do we say about the Chinese? We refuse to believe that which we do not understand. We foolishly believe that our own limitations are the proper measure of limitations. 
Oh, I see what he's saying. He's saying, what do we say about the Chinese? I see what you're saying. He Basically, he's saying that the guy, the Chinese man said that his it, what he sees about American people is the queer slant of our eyes. Our eyes are off slant. That's what he's saying. And then the guy, the writer is saying, but what do we say about the Chinese? We say pretty much the same thing is what he's saying. Not we as in me. Okay, so it says, we refuse to believe that which we do not understand. We foolishly believe that our own limitations are the proper measure of limitations. Sure, the other fellow's eyes are off slant because they are not the same as our own. Millions of people look at the achievements of Henry Ford after he has arrived and envy him because of his good fortune or luck or genius or whatever it is that they credit for Ford's fortune. Perhaps one person in every 100,000 knows the secret of Ford's success, and those who do know are too modest or too reluctant to speak of it because of its simplicity. A single transaction will illustrate the secret perfectly, or I should say perfectly. (laughs) A few years back, Ford decided to produce his now famous V8 motor. He chose to build an engine with the entire eight cylinders cast in one block and instructed his engineers to produce a design for the engine. The engine was placed on paper, but the engineers agreed to a man that it was simply impossible to cast an eight-cylinder gas engine block in one piece. Ford said, produce it anyway, but they replied, it's impossible. Go ahead, Ford commanded, and stay on the job until you succeed, no matter how much time is required. The engineers went ahead. There was nothing else for them to do if they were to remain on the Ford staff. Six months went by, nothing happened. Another six months passed and still nothing happened. The engineers tried every conceivable plan to carry out the orders, but the thing seemed out of the question, impossible. At the end of the year, Ford checked with his engineers and again they informed him they had found no way to carry out his orders. Go right ahead, Ford said. I want it and I'll have it. They went ahead and then, as if by a stroke of magic, the secret was discovered. The Ford determination had won once more. Their story may not be described with minute accuracy, but the sum and substance of it is correct. Deduce from it... You who wish to think and grow wish the secret of the four millions, if you can. You'll not have to look very far. Henry Ford is a success because he understands and applies the principles of success. One of these is desire, knowing what one wants. Remember this Ford story as you read and pick out the lines in which the secret of his stupendous achievement have been described. If you can do this, if you can lay your finger on the particular group of principles which made Henry Ford rich, you can equal his achievements in almost any calling for sh- for which you are suited. Okay, we are on the final part of this introduction. Who knew it was going to be such a, a long read? Okay, so it's called, You Are the Master of Your Fate, the Captain of Your Soul, Because... When Henley wrote the prophetic lines, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul... He should have informed us that we are the masters of our fate, the captains of of our souls, because we have the power to control our thoughts. 
How many times have I said on this podcast alone that we are in control of our own thoughts, our own actions, our reactions? We have control. I have said this. That's all I'm going to say. I have said this. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. He should have told us that the ether in which this little earth floats and which we move and have our being is a form of energy moving at an inconceivably high rate of vibration and that the ether is filled with a form of universal power which adapts itself to the nature of the thoughts we hold in our minds and influences us in natural ways to transmute our thoughts into their physical equivalent. Did you get all of that? Did you? Because that was super deep. I'm going to repeat it for you again. He should have told us that the ether in which this little earth floats, in which we move and have our being, is a form of energy moving at an inconceivably high rate of vibration, and that the ether is filled with a form of universal power which adapts itself to the nature of the thoughts we hold in our minds and influences us in natural ways to transmute our thoughts into their physical equivalent. If the poet had told us of that great truth, we would know why it is why it is that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. He should have told us with great emphasis that this power makes no attempt to discriminate between destructive thoughts and constructive thoughts, that it will urge us to translate into physical reality thoughts of poverty just as quickly as it will influence us to act upon thoughts of riches. Wow. He should have told us too that our brains become magnetized with the dominating thoughts which we hold in our minds and by means with which no man is familiar, these magnets attract to us the forces, the people, the circumstances of life which harmonize with the nature of our dominating thoughts. I swear I've been saying all this just not as, you know, perfect as he just said it. He should have told us that before we can accumulate riches in great abundance, we must magnetize our minds with intense desire for riches that we must become money conscious until the desire for money drives us to create definite plans for acquiring it. But being a poet and not a philosopher, Henley contented himself by stating a great truth in poetic form, leaving those who followed him to interpret the philosophical meaning of his lines. Little by little, the truth has unfolded itself until it now appears certain that the principles described in this book hold the secret of mastery over our economic fate. Economic fate, sorry. And to be very honest with you, this is one of the reasons why I do not watch the news and I watch very little television. This is the reason why, because television television and the news and all these things it keeps our mind bound in whatever it is the powers that be want us want our minds to be bound with whether it's fear-mongering whether it's sex whatever it is it keeps us from the reality that we have the power we were given the power to create the lives that we want to live and because you are bound 
and the people who watch the most TV, you'll notice that they are the ones bound the most. And, and that goes from television to video games. This is why I push my niece to read more. Because the more you read, the more you're intelligent. Um, and this is why I try to read. Like right now, it's April, what, 25th? And I am at 61 books read for the year. This book right now that I'm reading will make book 62. So I'm at 61 books read for the year. And it's just simply because I want to always, number one, keep my mind sharp and to continue learning. The more you read, the more you continue to learn, you know? And the more you watch television and watch the news and things like that, the more you will continue to keep fear as your most dominant thoughts. And everything that you are fearing will come to pass. It will come to pass for you. We are now ready to examine the first of these principles. Maintain a spirit of open-mindedness. And remember, as you read, they are the invention of no one man. The principles were gathered from the life experiences of more than 500 men who actually accumulated riches in huge amounts. Men who began in poverty with but little education without influence. The principles worked for these men. You can put them to work for your own enduring benefit. You will find it easy, not hard, to do. Before you read the next chapter, I want you to know that it, conveyed, it conveys factual information which might easily change your entire financial destiny, as it has so definitely brought changes of stupendous proportions to, people, to two people described. I want you to know also that the relationship between these two men and myself is such that I could have taken no liberties with the facts, even if I had wished to do so. One of them has been my closest personal friend for almost 25 years. The other is my own son. The unusual success of these two men, success which they generously accredited to the principle described, in the next chapter more than justifies this personal reference as a means of emphasizing the far-flung power of this principle. Almost 15 years ago, I delivered the commencement address at Salem College, Salem, West Virginia. I emphasized the principle described in the next chapter with so much intensity that one of the members of the graduating class definitely appropriated it and made it a part of his own philosophy. The young man is now a member of Congress and an important factor in the present administration. Just before this book went to the publisher, he wrote me a letter in which he so clearly stated his opinion of the principle outlined in the next chapter that I have chosen to publish his letter as an introduction to that chapter. It gives you an idea of the rewards to come. Okay, so the introduction is over, but I am going to end this episode even though we're at 53 minutes I'm going to end this episode by reading the letter and then the next episode will start with chapter one okay it says my dear Napoleon my service as a member of Congress have having given me an insight into the problems of men and women I am writing to offer a suggestion which may become helpful to the thousands of worthy people with apologies I must state that the suggestion if acted upon will mean several years of labor and responsibility for you. But I am enheartened to make the suggestion because I know your great love 
for rendering useful service. In 1922, you delivered the commencement address at Salem College when I was a member of the graduating class. In that address, you planted in my mind an idea which has been responsible for the opportunity I now have to serve the people of my Senate and will be responsible in a very large measure for whatever success I may have in the future. The suggestion I have in mind is that you put into your book the sum and substance of the address you delivered at Salem College and in that way give the people of America an opportunity to profit by your many years of experience and association with the men who by their greatness have made America the richest nation on earth. I recall as though it were yesterday the marvelous description you gave of the method by which Henry Ford, with but little schooling, without a dollar, with no influential friends, rose to great heights. I made up my mind then, even before you had finished your speech, that I would make a place for myself, no matter how many difficulties I had to surmount. Thousands of young people will finish their schooling this year, and within the next few years, every one of them will be seeking just a message of practical encouragement as the one I received from you. They will want to know where to turn and what to do to get started in life. You can tell them because you have helped to solve the problems of so many, many people. If there is any possible way that you can afford to render so great a service, may I offer the suggestion that you include with every book one of your personal analysis charts in order that the purchaser of the book may have the benefit of a complete self-inventory indicating, as you indicated to me years ago, exactly what is standing in the way of success. Such a service as this, providing the readers of your book with a complete unbiased picture of their faults and their virtues, will mean to them the difference between success and failure. The service will be priceless. Millions of people are now facing the problem of staging a comeback because of the depression, and I speak from personal experience when I say, I know these earnest people would welcome the opportunity to tell you their problems and to receive your suggestions for the solution. You know the problems of those who face the necessity of beginning all over again. There are thousands of people in America today who would like to know how they can convert ideas into money, people who must start at scratch without finances and recoup their losses. If anyone can help them, you can. If you publish the book, I would like to own the first copy that comes from the press, personally autographed by you, with best wishes, believe me, cordially yours, Jennings Randolph. So just as a point of reference, Jennings Randolph was an American politician from West Virginia, he was a Democrat who was most notable for his service in the United States House of Representatives from 1933 to 1947, and then he became a senator from 1958 to 1985. He was also the chairman of the U.S. House on the District of Columbia and the U.S. House Committee on Civil Service. So that was his very illustrious career in Congress. So I just thought I would tell you that so you guys could know who Jennings Randolph was and how it was um, kind of a really high accolade for him to write this letter to Napoleon Hill and ask for it to be kind of um, to ask for Napoleon Hill to give 
to those who read his book what he gave to him. I thought that was pretty neat. So we're going to end it here. Um, although um, I don't like the racial references in the first, you know, the introduction of the book, I'm hoping it doesn't continue throughout the book. But I, you know, those were the times for some reason they thought it was okay to speak in race and to let everyone know the difference in the race and who was superior and who wasn't is is very notable to say that although they spoke the guy spoke down because i don't think this is napoleon hill who wrote this introduction but this person spoke down on the asian man the chinese man he still kind of spoke positively of like who this man was his influence and his affluence but on the black child she was called the derogatory names and you know made reference to the white man being her master and things things like that so i just thought it was very it didn't matter that the 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 asian guy had affluence he was still talked down about because he was not a white man maybe i'm reaching but that's what i got just from the race matter and again this book is not about race but because they thought to include race by describing only the people that weren't white about you know the fact that he decided to describe them this way it wasn't needed but he did it anyway so that's why you get this conversation from me anyway i am i am going to try my best in the next you know episodes if they mention race again to just supplant it with something better because i don't want these episodes to turn out negative because i am offended by the race language used when the book was written in 1937 and no that doesn't give it a pass but you know, those were the times, you know, it was a very racist country, even though it still is today. But, you know, a lot of us are not that way. So thank you guys so much for tuning in today to listen to me ramble about. I appreciate it. I am, I surprisingly, I am really enjoying the book though. And And we haven't even gotten to chapter one, girl. So definitely tune back in next Wednesday um for the next part of the book i am going to try to make these episodes longer because it's only once a week and if you guys remember before i used to do it twice a week but 30 minutes each so now it's going to be an hour just to kind of compensate tune in tomorrow if you want to pick back up on the book of enoch that i will resume tomorrow and then i think once we're done with the book of enoch i'll just keep wednesday and thursdays as you know the book days and maybe i'll start reading another book and we'll just be able to read two books in tandem girl okay thank you so much again for listening don't forget to add gratitude as a daily practice in your life i promise you your life will change once you add the daily practice of gratitude you guys have such a blessed day are you feeling stuck in your life Do you feel like you're not living up to your full potential? It's time to make a change. Let me help you create the best life possible. I am Luanza Christina, a mindset coach. 
I help people like you transform their lives by changing the way they think and feel. By working with me, you'll learn how to cultivate a positive mindset, overcome limiting beliefs, and achieve your goals. When we start working together, we'll identify your goals and what's holding you back. From there, we'll create a plan to help you achieve success. I'll be with you every step of the way, providing guidance and support as you navigate your journey. I've helped countless individuals achieve success in their personal and professional lives. My approach is rooted in gratitude and positivity, and I use a variety of techniques to help my clients achieve their goals. If you're ready to transform your life and achieve your goals, I'm here to help. Let's work together to create the best life possible. Send me an email now to thegratitudechick20 at gmail.com with the subject line, I am ready to master my mindset. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talks with the Gratitude Chick. I am your host, Luanza Christina, aka The Gratitude Chick. Don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and give it five stars. If you have not already, get your copy of my book, 21 Days of Thankfulness, available now on Amazon. <music>